Hello and welcome into another episode of the Galan Says Podcast. I am Paul Galan. Thank you so much for subscribing, for rating, for telling a friend, etc. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast a variety of different ways. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, other apps as well. Or you can watch it on YouTube. Hopefully this time things won't get messed up during the uploading of it. So this podcast won't look like an acid trip for a good 50 minutes or so. Check out the last episode on YouTube if you want to see that. You can listen to me talk, perhaps add some enhancements to your life, and have a really interesting experience. But yeah, it looked like some melting shit up there. We always read ratings. We always read reviews. We appreciate them so much. This one from Apple Podcasts. Mini Flora calls me Gladiator Galant. That makes me feel very, very good. I don't know if I have the body to pull off the, you know, the gladiator look. I've got, like, nice pecs, but the arms are a little skinny, a little wiry, look more like a runner, that's for sure. Anyway, I'm going to continue reading this before I get way too off topic. I can almost guarantee, almost, that Paul will elevate your mood, that Gallant says will elevate your mood. I hope it does. This episode might be a little depressing. At least it will offer up some sweet distraction, whether he does sports or news or anything else. Paul entertains. Well, I appreciate that very much, Minnie, Flora, and I hope that everyone else has that same kind of experience. On this podcast, I'm going to talk to my friend Mike Meltzer about the state of the Houston Texans. I haven't talked about them in a really long time. So this is going to be therapeutic, I think, for both Seahawks fans and Texans fans who listen. For Texans fans, you're going to realize that the Seahawks are a mess too. And if you're a Seahawks fan, you're going to realize that while things are not very good right now, at least we're not the Houston Texans. Hopefully everybody can handshake in the middle and become friends over this. In the meantime, let's go. A radio show host in Seattle called Paul Gallant. I was just kind of... Curious what Paul gets to see. You are definitely living in the hindsight world today, Paul. I got f***ing grow mother Are you kidding me? Paul Gillan, what the hell is wrong with you? All right, guys, it's time to admit that the 2021 Seattle Seahawks season is over and that perhaps the Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson era is over. They lost Monday night 17-15 to the Washington football team, a team without a nickname a team without its best defensive player, Chase Young, a team with a guy named Taylor Heineke under center that Monday Night Football was trying to compare over the course of that broadcast very often to Brett Favre, who, guess what, is somebody that Taylor Heineke grew up rooting for. Did you know that's why he picked number four? It was a game where Washington looked pretty firmly in control the entire way through until the last couple of minutes where a possibly suspect overturn of what would have been the game-clinching touchdown gave the Seahawks a chance for a last-minute drive. Russell Wilson actually made a couple of plays. They get a touchdown, two-point conversion. Russell Wilson throws it over the middle of the field. It gets deflected. But then they kick an onside kick. They actually recovered it, but it gets called back because Nick Ballore was on the wrong side of the hash, far away from the play with no effect on said play. He probably should know the rule. It's a dumb rule. Whatever the case, the Seahawks are now 3-8. and eight. It's over. And I don't know what they're going to do next. I mean, there's a lot of season left. They've played 11 games. There's still six games to go. And I mean, you can tell yourself that they'll get to nine and eight, win the next six games or something like that. 
But what have you seen over the last three weeks that makes you feel any confidence that that's a possibility? I haven't seen any of that. I mean, the shutout against the Packers, okay, Russell Wilson, he's rusty. The loss the next week, you're thinking to yourself, a 23-13 loss to the Cardinals. Oh, boy, they lost to Colt McCoy. This is bad. You lost to Taylor Heineke and Washington football team the next week. Like, it's awful, and Russell Wilson's looked terrible in all of these games. I don't really feel the need to watch them the rest of the year, to be perfectly frank. I will. I don't know why I watched that game to the end. I'm glad that I did. But it's time to put them to rest. Sorry if this eulogy sounds a little bit like the one that Livia Soprano got in The Sopranos. For those who don't know, that's Tony Soprano's mother. Terrible person. But, I mean, that's the kind of eulogy that this team deserves. Get a little music in the background. Because you always need a little bit of ambience to properly send someone off. My beloved children, we gather today to put the rest the 2021 Seattle Seahawks. We shall never forget in week one when Russell Wilson and Shane Waldron looked like a perfect combination and they beat the Indianapolis Colts who are kind of good now we will never forget at halftime of their game against the Tennessee Titans who also have been pretty good until they got hurt holding a 24-9 lead that was neat we're not going to talk about the loss to the Vikings they beat the San Francisco 49ers they were 2-2 at one point that's something Loss of the Rams. Loss of the Steelers. But it was Geno Smith, you know? Loss of the Saints. Eh, still, it's Geno Smith. We shall never forget when they crushed the Jacksonville Jaguars. 31-7. Geno Smith actually looked good in that game. To the point that you gotta wonder why the hell Geno Smith isn't in there. Because Russell Wilson is clearly not Russell Wilson right now. You know, they really crushed the bye week. Or at least they could say that they crushed the bye week. Oh, boy, I'm sorry. Uh, There was nothing redeeming in the loss of the Packers. Nothing redeeming in the loss of the Cardinals. Washington football team. It was a fun ending. DK Metcalf's barely been involved the last three weeks. I I guess sometimes Tyler Lockett looks like Tyler Lockett. Chris Carson's out for the year. Bobby Wagner looks like a shell of himself. Hey, Jamal Adams, career high, two interceptions. Huh? Maybe Trey Brown will be good next year when he's healthy. Um, Jordan Brooks has had a couple of games where he's looked good. Uh, Pete Carroll looks pretty good for a guy that's age 70, huh? A lot of energy, a lot of pep in his step. Um, I got nothing. This sucks. I hope you got some laughs along the way with this, but 
Jesus. This has been an absolutely brutal year. I could not imagine what, be, what it would be like to talk about this on a daily basis. I'm sort of glad I'm not. I do miss doing radio every single day, not gonna lie. But good God. You got six games left. And yeah, you play the Texans, you play Chicago, and you play Detroit, but... Mm. No first-round pick either. Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm sorry. This is bad. I'm getting depressed just thinking about it. By the way, we didn't even talk about a moment that took place in the Seahawks-Washington football team game where DK Metcalf, wide open on the right sideline on a third and short, was seen gossiping, chatting with Geno Smith on the sideline and animatedly pointing onto the field. The same Geno Smith who deleted a tweet that seemed to imply frustration with the way things are going with the Seattle Seahawks. He deleted said tweet, but I have a feeling that said frustration had to do with the fact that he played his best game as quarterback in, the, in that game against the Jaguars, which they won 31-7. to Bye week happens. Next thing you know, Russell Wilson's back under center. They can't score a point against the Packers. They look woeful against the Arizona Cardinals. And, of course, until the last drive of the game, they were a mess. And honestly, even the first drive of the game, I mean, they had a long pass to Tyler Lockett. If the Seahawks can't get long passes from Russell Wilson to really just Tyler Lockett, it seems like these days, they're not going to move the football. But I thought about that moment, and I thought about the tough decisions that head coaches sometimes need to make. And it gets me to a topic that I think applies to coaches across the NFL, but in particular to the head coaches of the two teams that I have covered in my 10 years officially covering the National Football League. First, Pete Carroll, of course. Second, David Culley, the head coach of the Houston Texans. There has to come a point where you, as an owner or a decision maker, realizes that it's time to move on, which is not easy. I think we believe it to be such a quick, snappy decision to make, but these owners have to pay these guys for the years left on their contract, and some owners are going to have a more difficult time doing that than others. Also... You have to have a really good feel for whether or not that coach is still getting better at something, improving. And that's tricky because the best organizations in the NFL have shown patience. Look at the coaching history of the Pittsburgh Steelers. They have been exceptionally patient with their coaches. And I think it's worked out for them pretty damn well all things considered. But after a while, as an owner, you have to be willing to pull a trigger and you have to see the signs that it's time to pull the trigger. It's going to be tough for the Seahawks to do it. Jody Allen, who is now in charge of the team, is going to have to look past this entire era that Pete Carroll was able to bring to this city. It's the best era of football the city ever had, following up Mike Holmgren, who also gave this city a pretty damn good era of football. Like, it's been pretty damn good for the last 20 years here in Seattle. I mean, arguably, I would say over the last 20 years, arguably the second or third best run. New England's obviously been number one, but 
uh, Seattle's up there with teams like Pittsburgh. I guess you could put the Green Bay Packers in there too if you want to go back to the mid-90s. Like They've been pretty damn consistent. But clearly it's not working right now. And if you don't feel like Pete Carroll is getting better as a head coach, the same bad habits have been happening the last couple of years when it comes to game management decisions, timeouts, and unwillingness to go for it on fourth downs, a desire to establish the run that he is perhaps a little bit too married to. Some of the people that want to let Russ cook, perhaps there were better ways that the Seahawks could have found to let Russ cook. And they point at Pete Carroll. Things have not gotten better over the last couple of years on his end. And then you factor in some personnel issues that they have had. Here we are. Time to move on from Pete Carroll. And I'm willing to say that right now. This season has been that kind of year. Let's look at coaches across the NFL. I mean, sure. Benching Russell Wilson for Geno Smith is a desperate move. And I think we have to acknowledge that even if Russ is playing like crap. Geno Smith has never been a good quarterback, ever. So if you make that move, I mean, you're really, I think, putting your fate in the hands of a locker room that could respond to a decision like that in a variety of different ways. Because I'm sure that there are some people that still support Russell Wilson and are like, really, we're going to win with Geno Smith. But there's others who are probably like, Russ can't throw right now. Geno has to be better. But I don't get the feeling that Pete Carroll is even entertaining the idea of benching Russell Wilson. And that, combined with a fact that he's just not getting better as a coach, is a problem. Then look at the Houston Texans. Look, I don't know if David Culley is anything more than a puppet for this season, and no one expected him to succeed with a roster that, let's be quite frank, has no talent outside of Brandon Cooks and maybe Justin Reed. But he benched Justin Reed for a disagreement in a team meeting this week. And then you see from Justin Reed, who says he is shocked after the fact, Why is a move like that being made outside of perhaps trying to flex to the rest of your team? A guy in David Culley who has already suspended Zach Cunningham um, and somebody else, I I forget who, this year. He suspended three players for, I guess, conduct detrimental to the team. The Texans keep preaching this thing called culture. But the guy who seems to embody the Texans' culture, what they would like to have going forward, at least on the defensive side of the ball— is Justin Reed. He says he's shocked that he gets suspended. He thought that the conversation, the team meeting was amicable. What is David Culley getting better at this year? I mean, if you take a listen to him in his press conferences, when he's asked about losses, he is constantly pointing to penalties and turnovers, really basic things. And he doesn't need to share with the class every single reason that the Texans are struggling. But it definitely doesn't make me a consumer of football, feel like the guy is particularly sharp. He was one of the last, I would imagine, targets that the Texans had at head coach when they realized that no one really wanted the job. 
And it's tough to perhaps put yourself back in the same situation that they put themselves in last offseason, where the Texans' job clearly looked like a disaster. You don't know what's happening with Deshaun Watson. And you're not really sure what's going on upstairs with Cal McNair, with Jack Easterby. And you have a Patriots guy that's running things, and things haven't exactly gone so well for a lot of the people that are trying to emulate the Patriots elsewhere in Nick Casario. But I feel like we've seen everything we need to see, and I think that this incident with Justin Reed really highlights that. The grasp that David Culley might have as a head coach compared to the grasp that he might have had as a positional coach, it's night and day. He's got none when it comes to this team. When a coach ceases to improve or looks like there's really no point in keeping him around long-term, why would you keep him around long-term? Pete Carroll's up there in age. David Culley's up there in age. Do we really think that David is going to improve that much as a head coach over the next couple of seasons? No. Why would you? He's not young. This isn't a situation like with Bill Belichick where he coaches for a little bit of time and then a couple of years later, he gets another head coaching gig a lot earlier in his career. We're talking 20 years ago for Belichick. This is a situation where a career assistant coach all of a sudden gets a head coaching gig. Good for him. But how much better can he really get at this job? Even if there is slightly better talent, when some of the moves that you're seeing this team make just make no sense. You know, not going for it on specific fourth downs that I saw lots of people on Texans Twitter pissed off about after the fact. And look, I I think you got to look at other coaches across the NFL too. Is your head coach willing to make a tough decision? Kevin Stefanski is someone who I think is still growing on the job. It has not been a good year for the Browns this season. He is in a spot right now where I think he needs to make a tough decision. And it's different than benching Russell Wilson for Geno Smith. Baker Mayfield is clearly injured. Why are the Browns not putting Case Keenum, who I am not the biggest fan of, but is a good backup, an expensive backup, why are they not putting him in? The last time he started for them on a Thursday night, if I'm not mistaken, the Browns won. These are the kind of things that Stefanski is going to have to get better at. But we know Stefanski has time based off of what he did in his first season. Look at Sean McVay with the Los Angeles Rams. I don't think the guy gets nearly enough criticism for the way that he has coached over the course of his career. Now, obviously, he was off to a great start in his first couple of seasons in L.A. Jared Goff was looking like someone who actually had potential, at least while working with McVay. Todd Gurley might have been the most important player in the NFC because of how good he was. And I'm talking about non-quarterbacks there and how much he opened up for that offense. But he gets hurt and all of a sudden the Rams offense hits a wall. And since those first two seasons, McVay, I think, has been a eh, head coach. Not to say bad. But I don't think he gets nearly the criticism that he should. And when you're watching the Rams play over the last couple of weeks and you're seeing these stories about Matt Stafford being injured, these are things you should have expected going into this. Matt Stafford's had back injuries the last couple of seasons, among others. He's played through it. He's tough. But that body of his is a lot older than what it is listed at. What, 33, 34? 
in football years, I would say that he is venturing very close to his mid-40s, just based off of some of the injuries that it seems like he is suffering over and over again. Have the Rams improved as an offense? Has Sean McVay improved as a head coach over the last couple of seasons? I don't think so. I think he's regressed. They got a lot of talented players there. And there will come a point where I think that the Rams need to look themselves in the mirror and wonder, is Sean McVay really everything that we thought he once was a couple of years ago? This is a guy who was hook, line, and sinker sold on Jared Goff. A couple years later, he decides to move on from him. And it felt like an impatient move when he moved on from him. Now, he is married to Matt Stafford. And over the last couple of weeks, it just ain't working. What's been the difference? Other than maybe that Matt Stafford is just not that good. Well, also the Rams have sort of changed things up, and I don't think this is good. Yes, they don't have a great running game right now, but Sean McVay's first four years in the NFL, first in play action. The Rams were every single year. This year, they're 23rd. So they're doing things that are different. And it doesn't feel like they're doing things that are different for any good particular reason. Yes, they have some injuries. Guess what? The whole NFL has injuries. McVay deserves a little bit of criticism. And I think that when we look at head coaches across the NFL, you got to really know every single week, every single, I guess, couple of weeks, month, and season, you have to have a good feel as an owner whether or not that guy is actually getting better or improving. And if he is not, and it's stagnant for a couple of years, or you just feel like there's really no upside, you should pull the trigger every single time. Sadly, that applies to Pete Carroll. That applies to David Culley. I think it could one day apply to Sean McVay. And Stefanski's got time. But it's a tough gig. And it should be treated with very tough grading by owners who need to be more hands-on. In Seattle, we will see with Jody Allen. With the Texans, I think we have a pretty good feel with Cal McNair that there might be too much patience. And I would not be surprised to see David Culley as head coach of the Texans next season, too. Guess what? Time for more Texans talk. I know a lot of you guys are Seattle listeners. I'm trying to split things evenly between my Seattle listeners and my Houston listeners. Basically, my following is split in half between the two. It's a weird spot to be, especially when you don't have a job. I want to talk about both teams. And we're going to push back conversation about baseball and an extremely hot stove to Friday. Because I still feel like there are some moves that could be made. But I want to give a shout out to Jerry DePoto and the Mariners for... Bringing in Cy Young Award winner, Robbie Ray. I also want to give a shout out to the Texas Rangers. Look, I don't think anyone really takes them seriously. But when you spend that much money in an offseason, teams do at the very least have to think twice about just how deep their coffers are compared to yours. I mean, it's a pretty big flex by the Rangers right now. I don't know if it's going to work out, but I do think that they are going to have more of a pulse this coming season. So if you're the Astros and you're sitting back right now and, and you're hoping that after bringing Justin Verlander back that maybe you have a chance at Carlos Correa or something like that, I, I feel like there's a little more pressure on you. But we'll keep tabs on this and, and, and talk more about it on Friday's episode of the podcast. But right now, more talk about just where the Houston Texans are with my good friend, Mike Meltzer. Fair. Great. 
713. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you, Paul? I'm doing okay. You're in sunny Florida right now. I am in Seattle as things currently stand. But for those who don't know, Mike and I used to work together at Sports Radio 610. We went to Syracuse for a year together, though we were unaware of each other's existence. And in Houston, we were very good friends with one another, whether working together or in our little brief period, not working together at the very end of things. And now the guy is a lawyer and he is hosting on Mad Dog Radio, a man of many trades. What's the lawyer life like? Uh, good question. I think it, everything's going pretty well. I, I work for a, a pretty small firm. It's called Mize PC. We do uh, labor and employment, which I like because I feel like, you know, everybody has a job or like knows what jobs are or might employ people. And so I feel like it's, uh, it's something that people can kind of relate to. Uh, and sometimes it's sort of a combination of like, you're a lawyer, but then sometimes you feel like you're like a therapist for some of your clients, which is also interesting. Uh, but I like to think I'm, I'm kind of helping people in different ways, helping people, helping businesses, uh, it's pretty, it's different each day, which I like, like I, I tackle different projects and tasks, which, and I get, and I get to write, which, uh, I feel like I'm a decent writer. I'm not like a writer as in one of those people who like has to write each day, but I think I'm pretty good at it. And so it allows me to do that as well, which I like. It's interesting that you mentioned therapist. Cause I've always thought of you as a fantastic listener. And mainly well, thank you. <laughs> part of it has to do with the fact that we will have these G chat sessions where you'll just say something. And then I just like open up like I am your patient <laughs> and just yeah. a bunch of crazy shit. And you're like, yeah. ah, classic Paul. Well, There's a lot. I, of- I'll I'm not saying this in like a self-deprecating way. I, I think I have like a few strengths that are pretty decent. And I think one of them is I think I am a pretty good listener because I, I I'm genuinely interested in people and kind of their stories and, and where they are, their opinions, all of that. I wish I was a better listener. I think that I have the ADD, but perhaps, perhaps I'm just a selfish narcissist. I don't know. I'm working on this. This is a, this is a part of the process of becoming a better radio show host and person. Um, we don't have to cover Houston sports on a daily basis anymore. I know that yes. you still have your hands on top of things. Holy shit. I mean, I didn't think things could get to the point that they've gotten where yes, the Astros are awesome. We think that the run is going to continue to some degree, whether or not they'll make it to a six straight ALCS. I don't know, but the Texans are one of the laughing stocks of the NFL and the Rockets. I don't know if it's fair to call them that, or if it's fair to just call them perhaps the least talented team in basketball, whatever the case Houston sports are a tad depressing these days. Yeah. Especially with the Astros now, you know, in the off season, I think people are kind of good with where the Rockets are. I mean, there's been a little drama, like when they lost whatever it was 15 games in a row, I think people were like, okay, like we expect it to be bad, but should you lose every single game? Like that seems like that's not, even if you're expecting bad, you expect a little more Then they've won a couple in a row and you're like, okay, now it looks more normal. Um, yeah, this Texan situation, I think really looms over everything. Um, and I think there's kind of a, I think the largest portion of people have are either angry or checked out. And what I've observed is that there's like, and maybe I'm too sensitive to this, uh, but I've observed there's like this sort of, there's been this growth of like contrarians Hmm. in the last, I would say probably since like last December and January, people who are like, 
very big on blaming Deshaun Watson on acting like this situation is totally normal, trying to like dunk on people and acting like the organization just in some sort of like typical rebuild where I think, I just think they ignore some of the things that are happening in the organization, specifically uh, the presence of Jack Easterby, like the reverberations that has, and just, I think ignoring what seems to be the reality that, I mean, there are other like plenty of bad NFL teams. Like I'm a Jets fan and they're not good, but I'm not like at odds with where that organization is because like, you know, Robert solid numerous times has gotten up there at press conferences this year and been like, yeah, we're rebuilding. So there are games where we expect to look awful <laughs> and there are games where we're going to beat some teams that you're like, Hey, there's something building here. And they've been very upfront. The Texans feel like they have this complete sort of head in the sand approach uh, to where I think rivers and written about this. They sort of treat each day as if it's like everything. When if you're an organization, especially if you're losing, you have to kind of, you have to start to, you know, build for sort of a longer term. And it just seems like it's an organization, I guess that, and I was on a, I'm probably going too long here, but I was on a, U, I was going on a, I went on a UK podcast about two, three weeks ago. And the host asked me, do the Texans realize they are in as bad of a situation as they are in? And I think that question really hits at the fundamental issue with the organization. Hmm. You mentioned Jack Easterby a little bit ago. And for those from Seattle listening right now, Jack Easterby is this weird Joel Osteen-esque figure, which is to say he is very similar to some of those evangelicals that you will see on Sundays at these massive mega churches. And he has somehow gone from being a team chaplain to being, what is he now, Mike? The, is he the vice president? Whatever his official title is, it's crazy the amount of power that he has seemed to amass. And the Texans owner, Cal McNair, the son of Bob McNair, does not particularly seem like a very sharp owner based yes. off of the power it seems that Easterby has been able to create based off of at least two outsiders like you and I, Mike, his personal relationship with Cal McNair more so than perhaps his actual qualifications. And to get to what you were talking about with that podcast, who needs to realize that, that this is what the organization is right now. It feels like it's going to be really difficult to get Cal to confront this. So Who's supposed to take it head on? Is it supposed to be Jack Easterby? Are we supposed to hear from him publicly? Is it supposed to be Nick Casario, who, having been with New England for such a long period of time, seems like he speaks in code? Is it supposed to be David Culley, who really feels like a puppet at this point? Best case scenario, though, a puppet that seems to be wielding a lot of power. Somehow. Yes, suddenly. <laughs> uh, I think it's got to be Cal. You know, because ultimately, like, you know, Harry Truman once said or had on his desk, you know, the buck stops here. Uh, he was the president. The buck stops here. The buck has to stop with the owner. Um, but listen, Cal, I've never been super impressed by Cal on an individual level. But I, I will say that, you know, I think Cal has like half of what it takes to be a, a decent NFL owner down, which is he is willing to spend a lot of money. He's willing to fire people. 
Uh, he's willing to invest in resources. I think that's really important. Some of these guys aren't actually willing to do that. Um, Cal spent a lot of money on this team last year in 2020. I think they spent the most cash uh, of any team in the NFL in 2020. Uh, they spent money this offseason, I think, idiotically. But I think it's Cal who has to sort of realize, like, I, I just I, I go back to the DeAndre Hopkins trade. And I, I think there's this idea that organizations have that, like, we know best and the fans have to basically follow along with everything that we do because they're fans they're not going to stop being fans like the, the Deandre Hopkins trade. So a, a trade that was first guessed as being one of the worst trades in NFL history hasn't changed since Cal was quoted as saying after that trade, you know, well, if I was a fan, I would be excited that my team is willing to, you know, take chances like this, which I think in a vacuum is not like a crazy statement to make just as a general point that like some organizations would do the most conservative thing all the time. I get that. That's the but like taken. You're moving on from an iconic player and you're not bringing yes. something in. That's like known commodity in yes. return. I mean, here's my question. If you are, if you own an NFL team or you're a high level executive, like Nick Casario, what do you do? If the, if the trust between the organization and the fan base has been broken, because I firmly believe Paul, that the trust between the fan base and the team was broken by the DeAndre Hopkins trade. So while the fans are never going to run the team, I get that. If you are Cal, if you are Nick, what do you do with the idea that the fan base's trust has been broken? Do you address it? Do you ignore it? Do you pretend like it doesn't exist? Do you just say, well, trust us and it'll be good in a couple of years? Like, what do you actively do about that? Hmm. I actually think... And I know this might sound like a little weird, especially with the way the NFL operates, but I think this might sound ridiculous. Like I think the Texans should apologize to their fans for the Hopkins trade. I think they should do that. Like I I think they should go though. If they did that, I'm with you because I think that you're right. They have lost the trust of the fan base, but it does not seem like they are going to come out and say, Hey, this is our PowerPoint plan as far as how we get better. And the big frustration that I have on the outside looking in, and you're more on top of the team than I am is I do not know what individual pieces they have right now. That will be something substantial down the road. What are you building towards right now? And obviously maybe we need to wait until the off season to get to that point so that we can see some of the steps, but that's, that's, I think, the big problem for them right now is they they don't they don't have anything to show anyone. Um, so yes. okay, if they apologize, great. But I feel like if they apologize, that will open up a door for people to ask for them to apologize for moving on from JJ Watt, even if JJ Watt did ask for to be out of town. Moving on from Whitney Merciless to a lesser extent. What you have seen over the course of the last year is that while this franchise has not had much of a history it feels like all of a sudden any memories that this fan base has built up with this team that has not been very good over its existence have just been burnt to smithereens, which is something the city has already experienced when the Oilers left. And that is a lot for a fan base to deal with. And I think that's something that should be factored into this. I have friends, Mike, that are about our age who are totally out on the NFL. They are college football fans first and foremost because the Oilers left when they were about mm, 10, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, that's a big part of this too. And look, you're, you're, you're coming in, you want to do things differently if you're Nick Casario, but there is a history side of things with Houston football fans 
who have been quite frankly fucked over for a long period of time. And this feels like it's more of it from an entirely different group. And I, yeah, I, it's, it's a great, it's a great, I think your idea, the apology, it's a great first step, but I don't know that they would be willing to, because there are other things that I think that they would have to apologize for along the way. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe it doesn't come in that form, but just some sort of acknowledgement that like, Hey, you know, the, you know, things have gone really awry. Uh, this organization has been sy systematically dismantled over the last couple of years and just to level with people and, and just say, like, even if you were to come out at some level, the owner, Nick Casario, who obviously has a lot of power and to say, Hey, we understand like just some sort of acknowledgement, acknowledgement yeah. of like how people, how the fans feel about it. Like something at a press conference during a radio interview being like, listen, we see the crowds on game day. We know what this could be. We understand why you guys are frustrated and you know what? That's on us. You know, we owe it to you to put the best product in the field. It's going to take time. We understand where the trust is broken and we're going to work every waking hour towards making this a better product and not putting our heads in the sand and just blaming it on Deshaun Watson because you know, Deshaun's 26 and yes, he's made mistakes and he's a large part of the reason why they're as bad as they are at this point. But like, if you're going to use that as an excuse based on his age, you can use that as an excuse for the next like 12 years. Like once they trade him, they can blame it on Deshaun for the next 12 years. If they are so committed to kind of sticking their heads in the sand on it. Um, and I understand that like, this was always going to be a lost season. I think everybody understands that it was always going to be a lost season, but I think they're, you know, the most valuable resource that all of us have is time, right? Like it's the thing that you cannot get back. And I don't think they have used their time well in this season. They signed a lot of guys to one year contracts. I think they signed too many. I think they spent too much money. I think they restructured contracts, which made no sense. I know this is kind of getting into the weeds, but like, I think they, they have too old of a, too old of a roster. They didn't, they barely signed any undrafted free agents to me. Like you look at what the jets are doing or some of these other bad teams, the lions. I think those teams are in a better spot than Houston is because they, they acknowledge the reality of the situation that they're in. They're playing a, a ton of young players. They're getting those guys reps. And I think the Texans are kind of slowly getting to that point. They've released different guys. They've traded different guys. They're playing more young players, but even like Monday of this week, David Cully says, as long as Tyrod Taylor is healthy, he's going to be the starter. Like, I don't think Davis Mills will be good or has been good, but Tyrod Taylor had a QBR of 22.1 against the Jets, who came into Sunday's game with the last ranked defense by DVOA in the NFL. And the Texans did nothing. I mean, zilch on six second half drives. This is a Jets defense that was massacred by the Patriots, by the Colts, uh, not so much by Miami. Uh, there was some other team I'm forgetting, yeah. like the, the blowouts kind of run together, but like they've been like nope. massacred by these teams and, and the Texans couldn't do anything. And you're like, how in a year where you're two and nine and Tyrod Taylor's on a one-year contract and you're going to need to make some decisions as a quarterback, like how can you just how can you possibly say that Tyrod Taylor with the way that he's played, and by the way, they like they won against Tennessee a week ago, but that was with five turnovers. Tyrod didn't do a whole lot in the second half of that game either. Like on a, yeah, on a team yeah. that's played 11 games. Yes. You've lost nine. You're two and nine. Your veteran quarterbacks on a one-year contract. How can you say that he is going to remain the starter as long as he's healthy? 
when he's not playing well. It's illogical. Right. And maybe that is just a reflection on Davis Mills. Having watched Davis Mills, there have been some flashes where I'm like, oh, wow, this guy's got a cannon. But it feels, yeah. and, and you know my my stance on on quarterbacks who can't move. I'm I'm of the belief if I were a general manager, I would not draft a quarterback who can't move. Maybe that would yes. bite me in the ass because Mac Jones seems to be of all the rookie quarterbacks this season the best rookie quarterback out there. We'll see if that continues over time. But yeah, with with Mills, I wonder maybe they look at themselves and they're like, well, he can't even improvise. So what's what's the point? But you're right. There needs to be a big picture plan. And I don't know if David Culley has a big picture plan or if he is getting into i need to save my job mode it's hard to think otherwise when the latest incident that happened with the houston texans is that on friday justin reed who is i find a very energetic personality that if the texans are looking for anyone to just point out on their team and say this guy represents us he's one of them now i haven't been there for the last two years but having done an interview with him he is he is, I think, everything that you are looking for in a leader for your team. Whether or not that play on the field is translating, thats I'll leave that to you, Mike. But they suspended him before the game for a disagreement during a team meeting. Reed said he was shocked about this, and he thought that the meeting was amicable. But Cully, when he was asked about it, said it's something that they're going to keep internal. They've also suspended Desmond King this year. They've also suspended Zach Cunningham this year. And I wonder what the point of these suspensions are, because I have a hard time buying into the idea that Justin Reed was openly confrontational in my interactions with Justin Reed with, yeah. with David Culley. I, I, I just wonder what it would be. And when you see suspensions like this, that seem to be rather pointless, this is sort of like flexing, Hey, I'm still in charge here. But why do you need to flex that you're still in charge here in what you pointed out earlier, Mike, is a season that we know is going nowhere. Like this feels like pointless gestures that are being done, what, for the public to see and say like, oh, this guy's in charge, the rest of the locker room to see? Because, I mean, who's going to be thinking a guy getting suspended when the team's two and nine <laughs> that this is a good move? They all know that Justin Reed is at the very least a solid player. And yes, a lot of people have to be scratching their heads in the locker room right now. And that's a huge problem I think to have. Yeah. I, it's, it's one of these things like I, I just, you think about coming off of Thanksgiving, like everyone does the holiday people watching college football on Saturday. And like, so I always think that Sunday after Thanksgiving is kind of like, it, it's sort of a different kind of feeling because it's not like a typical NFL Sunday. I think yeah. people kind of enter it after like a couple days off. Like it's sort of like a sort of a more calm environment. Yeah. And I'm almost thinking like, you know, you got seven games to go before Sunday. Like, can you just kind of like hide in the noon central window, lose your games, just be quiet, like get to the off season, get the two or three pick and just kind of like move on instead. Nope. More drama with this organization. Uh, from what I've heard, like the Desmond King and the Zach Cunningham suspensions, especially Zach came from like, you know, him not showing up to certain things oh, okay. that you have That's to fair. show up to. And so like, yeah, those are fair. And you know, we can discuss like how they're selling their program to these guys. And that's a topic certainly, but you know, from what I can gather, just kind of context clues, it seems like they have a certain idea of what they want Justin Reed to do uh, for the defense they have this year. And I think he probably has some other ideas about the best way that he plays. Like, I think he might want to play like single high, you know, play deep safety, and they want him to play more run support, let's say. Like, I think that's a reasonable hypothetical. Okay, 
you know, what do you do in that situation? Um, I, I think like it's, if, if he's showing up and having a genuine disagreement, like why does that result in a suspension of a game essentially, unless he basically told you, I am unwilling to play the role that you are giving me. Like, like that's what I would like to know. Yeah. If it's, if it's David Culley saying, Hey, we think to help out the defense, you need to do this. And Justin Reed says, well, I think I am better doing, you know, Y or Z. Is that disagreement enough for a suspension? You would feel like there needs to be something more there. Like, I don't know where you come down on that. Like, what do you do if the team feels like it needs X, the player feels like he's best in Y? Like, what do you do in that spot? Especially where, where a guy is a pending free agent who's probably not going to come back. Well, I, I guess the question is, do you think that the coach will be right? I will bring up an example that I've seen firsthand here in Seattle. Quandre Diggs, when he was in Detroit, was a guy that was being put in a lot of different roles in Detroit. Um, Nickel corner, other places as well. And you can understand why, because when he was at Texas, these were some of the roles that he was being used in. But there were some real questions about Matt Patricia's defensive leadership and we're talking about Matt Patricia, who was very, you know, proud of the fact that he designed the play <laughs> that Malcolm Butler had the game-winning interception in in Super Bowl 49. Diggs, when he joined the Seahawks and started playing that center-high, deep safety role, was outstanding. To the point where we, I think a lot of people were wondering, wait, we, we got this guy for a fifth-round pick? So I, I, I think that sometimes a player knows where he is best used and what he is best with. Diggs has been the Seahawks' best defensive back over the last two and a half seasons. I don't think that's even debatable, whether it's as a guy who can come up in some in run support, which he is very good at, or as a guy who is covering deep safety. He had issues with Patricia and I think he was right. So I, I think that some people are going to look at this on the outside in. And I would imagine it's some of those contrarians you were talking about a little bit earlier, who are going to say, well, he didn't listen to what the coach said. Well, sometimes the coaches are fucking idiots <laughs> and yes, that's not to yeah. say that Cully is necessarily one. I'm just saying that sometimes the players are actually right about how they should be used. And Justin Reed seems like the kind of guy who I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to potentially being right in this situation as compared to somebody else who, um, uh, let's see, say like Brandon Harris. Remember Brandon Harris, yeah. the Texans way yes. back in the day, doing all his inter- no fly zone. Yeah, the no fly zone, his incomplete pass dance. Like if Brandon Harris was saying something, I'd be like, shut the fuck up. But if it's for Justin Reed, I'm willing to listen here, and I hope that other people are going to be willing to listen here too, because I, I and it seems like they are. I, I think people are looking for anything to be mad about with the Texans these days too, which kind of sucks sure. for them. But um, I, I I wonder if Reed actually was right or had a point that was a good one that he brought up, and if he brought it up amicably, as he said. Yeah, I have a hard time buying into a full game suspension, maybe like a series or something like that. That that's that would make sense. A whole game? Uh, that's weird yeah. with the way things are going. I mean, I, I just wonder in terms of, of, of a culture of a workplace, I, I understand a football team, you know, they're not doing you know as serious of things like like the military, but I understand that the hierarchy can be kind of similar. Like the coach is like the general and the general manager is whatever the military equivalent is. But I think part of a good culture at any workplace is genuine, honest feedback of people with people like you and I have worked on shows together. I think it's important to be able to like give each other honest, constructive criticism, feedback, whatever, because I think 
it makes the whole product better. And so I would wonder. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I think at times we probably all could have been better with one another when it was the three of us, you know, when we were doing that mm -hmm. radio, there were times that we could have communicated with each other a little bit better. And I've said that before with some of my other shows too. Anyway, sorry, continue. No, I, I agree. And so I wonder like, what if there are people in the Texans organization, let's say, what if there are players who feel like, Hey, what Jack Easterby does is uncomfortable. Uh, how do they, like, who do they tell that to? Yeah. Can they say that to David Cully? Can they say that to Nick Casario? Is that something that is, you know, accepted? Um, Jack Easterby, if you look at the team's website, he is the executive vice president of football op operations. Oh, and he directs the overall culture of the organization. What happens if players on the team disagree with the direction of the overall culture? Who can they tell that to? Who can they see? And are those people willing to listen? Um, again, I understand going back to the military example, like the owner is going to hire his sort of like lieutenants, you know, the GM, the head coach, and ultimately like it's their decision. I, I understand that. But if players feel a certain way and they feel like, hey, things are a little bit askew here, who can they tell their honest feelings and honest feedback to? Because uh, it, it seems like that answer is very murky with the, with the Houston Texans right now. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I don't think they can change in one off season. I don't think they can change it in multiple off seasons. You know, it, it's, it's this weird spot that they're going to be stuck in for a long period of time. And, you know, we're thinking of solutions, trying to on the fly, <laughs> you know, well, I, I, I really am having a hard time thinking of one. Do you have anything else that you could potentially suggest to them in the suggestion box? I think, the, I think the, the really big question I have with, with the over, like, obviously they, they kind of have like the sort of like Democles or whatever the, the phrase is like hanging <laughs> over them as long as <laughs> like the Watson trade, like, the, like obviously like they need to at some point make that trade to see what they can get for them and basically cash in on those assets. Like, I understand that's critically important, but I just wonder if Paul, like, big picture, like, what do they do with this coach? Uh, what do they do with David Cully? Um, because it, I think it's a terrible thing in general to fire a coach after a year, because I, I think as we're getting to an age in the NFL and college football, I think it's not, not only just player empowerment, but almost like employee empowerment where people are not just going to take head coaching jobs or take money, even if it, there's a lot of it, because the opportunity exists. I think, people are increasingly looking at opportunities and really scrutinizing them. Like how good of a job is this? Whether it's a coach, whether it's a player, if the Texans fire David Culley after a year, is this a good job? Is this a head coaching job, a good yeah. head coaching job when oh, they fired? Man. Yeah. When they fired Gary Kubiak, I would tell you, I think it was a really good head coaching job because it pays a lot of money and they're very patient with their head coaches. Well, that would no longer be the case. And I wonder, especially like if I'm going to be the next head coach of the Texans, can I pick my assistants? You know, can I pick my coaching staff? How much am I going to, how much of a say am I going to have over my roster? And I think that leads people naturally to wonder if they move on from David Culley, whatever happens there, are they going to be limited to Patriots guys, guys who Nick Casario knows Brian Dable, and especially somebody like Josh McDaniels where going in. And I wonder almost like, with the way they've set it up, is that the only possible way they can have success? Because the next Brandon Staley or, you know, somebody like Joe Brady, I can't imagine they're going to be good with this sort of 
with this sort of structure that Houston has right yeah. now. Like a yeah. minor point, minor point, like sports radio, Six Ten, our former employer, this might be like a really minor point, but I'm curious about this. So they build their training camp this year in 2021 as camp Casario. I would love to know in the other 31 NFL cities, how kosher it would be if a radio station or a newspaper tabbed a training camp camp GM where the general manager is more important than the head coach. And everyone's kind of cool with that. Yeah, that's a great point. And to the points that you laid out, those are my thoughts exactly on if you move on from him after this year, this job looks even less attractive than it did last off season, which by the way, it was, I mean, it took them a really long time for them to get somebody in. And then you hear, it's like, who the fuck is David Cully? I mean, that was yes. my first reaction. No offense to David Cully when they brought him in and you know what? Good for him getting the job and getting the money. But what are you building towards with him? I, I, I think, and this is something I laid out earlier in the show. Your head coach has to be progressing in one way or another. Other, either they have pelts on the wall and you know who they are and you know who they've been for a really long period of time. Take, for example, Bill Belichick, Andy Reid. But if all of a sudden the pelts on the wall aren't exactly looking as, I guess, well-kept as they had been in years past, and I point to Pete Carroll on this one, then all of a sudden you got to start wondering, okay, is this guy getting better? And does it make sense for the future of my organization to have him if it looks like he is getting worse at his job? I, I would point to other young coaches, Kevin Stefanski. We're going to learn how he manages crisis this year. Yes. I don't think that he's in any, any danger when it comes to his job, but I do think that the way that he's managed his quarterback situation between Baker Mayfield and Case Keenum, I'm not a big Case Keenum fan, but you're paying Case Keenum a lot of money to be your backup. And Baker Mayfield is clearly really hurt. I don't care if it's a yes. contract year. If you want to win games in an AFC North where you're still in the thick of things, you got to put a quarterback in there. Who's a little bit better. So this is something Stefanski can learn. And when it comes to Sean McVay, I feel like Sean McVay is actually regressing and it makes me wonder long-term about his future, though. I don't think the Rams are going to make a move about him at the end of the year, but bringing it back to David Culley, what do we think that David Culley is getting better as better at <laughs> as a head coach? And, and, and to be quite honest, like, you're going to be hard pressed to find anything. And I guess that's unfair to Cully, but if you don't have someone that you feel like can get better as a head coach, who's already old as it is, it's hard to rationalize keeping him past this year, even if it makes the job less attractive going forward. I think you need to find somebody who has some potential to become something better than this. And that's why the hire of Cully in the first place is just a one that you almost think about and say, why not just keep like Romeo Cornell as the head coach, you know, like if well, I, I, going I, yes. I think that's a great, I think that's a great point. I, I keep wondering about the last month. I'm like, even though bringing Romeo back would have been like a, a super depressing kind of move in and of itself. And I like Romeo, but it, it would have been, but, but you think of what happened since nobody was inspired by the hiring of David Cully, it makes you wonder like, why didn't they just keep Romeo Cornell around? Like yeah. what, what did they think was the difference in hiring David Cully? And let me put it this way. Now it obviously takes two to tango, but if you want to think about an interim coach or a quote unquote interim style coach who you're like, all right, he's going to bring us from one place to another. This was going to be a lost year anyway, because of the lack of draft picks and not a, a ton of cap space, et cetera. Why not hire somebody like Jim Caldwell, who I know is in the running for the job. Now, Jim Caldwell may have not wanted to sign up for this, but Jim Caldwell has been, a college football head coach, a multiple time NFL coach. This guy took the Lions to the playoffs. He took the, the Colts to the Super Bowl. Even if it was coming off of Dungey, like 
Jim Caldwell is an accomplished coach. He was the offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens when they won the Super Bowl with Joe Flacco. Like he has pelts on the wall. That is somebody who has accomplished things. And with all due respect to David Culley, David's resume is sort of like, hey, he's a nice guy who's been a position coach for a long time, but he doesn't seem to bring a whole lot of actual tangible X's and O's stuff to the table. And by the way, Paul, like that's the way they almost advertised David Culley. They were like, yeah, we're focusing more like less on X's nose than like positive attitude culture. It's like, how insulting is that to the guy you're hiring? If that's what you say about him. And to justify him going forward too, on top of all of that. Yeah. It's, it's hard to rationalize it. And as you said, Jim Caldwell's a perfect example. Jim Caldwell is somebody that if shit doesn't go well for you this year, this Next off season, you can justify keeping him around. You're like, well, it's yes. Jim Caldwell. Like the guy's been a successful head coach before, and he's never been a massive problem for any of the organizations that he's been a part of. Sometimes I wonder whether or not he's actually a human being because I don't think I've ever seen his mouth move. <laughs> but yes, because I've never watched any of his press conferences or anything like that. But you can justify David Caldwell. I mean, he was decent in Detroit, which honestly, all things considered, that's that's a, an accomplishment as well. I mean, that's hard yes. to do that. He got blown out there for Matt Patricia's a weird one. So I I'm, I'm with you and it's a bummer. I, I really do feel bad for everybody who is still following this product because you deserve better than this. And it doesn't feel like there is any direction that you can even sell yourself on, but like removing both um, Cal McNair and Jack Easterby or Nick Casario or David Culley from the equation. And, and that's the worst place to be like, even you at the jets, uh, you know, I, I have questions about Joe Douglas, but I think Robert Sala has got some potential. Uh, Zach Wilson. I'm not going to, you know, wave the white flag on him already. At least there's, there is something that you can sell your fan base on. And while jets fans have been sold hope for a really long period of time, there have been moments at the very least that make you feel like that you can be justified here. It's just, we are what we are. We're not really changing. We're not seemingly caring about our perception and yes, you just got to deal with it. I mean, I also think like, I, I truly believe the Texans are in a worse situation than any team in the league from a pure roster standpoint. Like I don't know, Paul, if I've ever seen a roster that is this bereft of talent. I mean, even if, even when you look at, let's say, the lions or the jets, like they have some foundational building pieces. I know the lions are winless, but they've got two tackles and Taylor Decker and Penny Sewell, who I think, you know, are foundational football players. Uh, you know, they have some decent players, you know, up and down that roster. Uh, it's not many, but it's a few plus they already have cashed in on Matt Stafford. So they have the extra picks coming. Uh, the jets roster is not in great shape, but like, it seems like Joe Douglas hit on Elijah Vera Tucker. Uh, they, it seems like they hit on Elijah Moore. They hit on their, their running back, uh, Michael Carter. They have Quinn and Williams. Like they have certain pieces here and there. Obviously it all goes to hell. If the quarterback's not good, but like there are pieces on the roster. Yeah. The Texans are, are in a spot where I, I keep asking Paul this question. You need to fill 22 spots in an NFL team, like 22 starters. Obviously you need more, but like, let's you focus on those 22. You're never going to have 22 all pros, but the next time, the Texans play a game that actually matters. How many guys on that 22 are on this roster right now? Mm. Like, is it three? Is it two? <laughs> is it one? Is it not a single oh, player? Like 
this roster feels, Paul, to me like it is, you know, I, I know that people sell the NFL. It's like, well, you can have quick turnarounds. I don't know how they can have a quick turnaround with this roster. Like, I just don't know how that's possible. I feel like they need, you know, two or three drafts just to kind of like reset things to where it's at like a, a reasonable level. I don't either. And, you know, one of the things that I was struck by on the outside looking in when Casario first came in, having grown up watching the Patriots, was that the offseason felt in a way, not totally, but in a way similar to the offseason before 2001 in that they brought in a lot of veterans who you're like, who the hell is this guy? Uh, Those veterans ended up being players like Mike Vrabel, uh, Brian Cox, um, uh, um, some of the other guys. Was it like Anthony Pleasant, Roman Pfeiffer? Pfeiffer, um, Pfeiffer. Um, uh, shoot, there was, was a, Otis Smith or was he already, but it's like all those like old school guys. I David think they Patton. had brought Otis Smith back for a second run. You're right. Yeah. yeah. There, there, there's a bunch of guys that they bring in essentially a David Patton at wide receiver, like a bunch of guys they bring in and you're like, who the yeah. hell are any of these guys? And they all played pretty well over the course of the season. But that team also had a Super Bowl core that had Teddy Bruschi, it had Willie McGinnis, it had Ty Law, it had Lawyer Malloy. That's just on the defensive side of things. It had a guy in Troy Brown who had always been a very good player for them. It had Terry Glenn, at least for a little bit of time. Like there was talent on that roster. On this roster, after Brandon Cooks, who would you point to and say, this is a plus player in the NFL? This is one of the better questions at his position in the NFL. And after that, I have no idea. Uh, and and that's that's a problem. Like, I can't even say that about Justin Reed, who I like as a player. But I, I, yeah, one of the he's best solid. in the NFL. I don't, I don't think so. Laramie Tunsil, is he one of the best tackles in the NFL even? You know, it, it, considering all that you gave up for him. And that's a bygone era, the Bill O'Brien era and those trades that he made. But and, you know, considering what you gave up for Laramie Tunsil, I don't think that it really fixed things in the way that you would have liked it. And you would think that someone like Laramie, Laramie Tunsil would make life possible for somebody like Davis Mills in, in, in this NFL, uh, you know, cause there'd be a little bit more time for him behind, I, uh, uh, behind the yeah, I, It just, to me, the off season was weird in just how many transactions they made with guys where you're like, okay, realistically, how many of these guys, like you can just tell by the profiles of some of them that like, Hey, they aren't really going to stick around. Like I'm just looking yeah. at the depth chart right now. And it's like, you know, Danny, Danny Amendola, you know, who's 35 years old. It's like, that's not a guy who's going to be sticking around Chris Conley. Like that's like roster filler uh, to me, what I would have done. And this is really 2020 hindsight. Nick Casario seemed like he made like two pretty solid moves. They signed Malik Collins, but he's a younger guy who was on like a third contract. I think he's like 25, 26, 27 interior pass rusher played well. They signed Camus Grugier Hill, who I think has played well, been a leader for them, culture guy, et cetera. To me, instead of signing like 30 guys, I think they just went in excess. I get what Nick was doing. I, I understand that Patriots 2001 model. I, I get it. Um, but like, you can't go overboard on it. Like sign five guys, sign 10 guys. But if I were the Texans, I would have been thinking about that 22. I mentioned a few minutes ago. And I would have been like, I'm going to bring in a big undrafted class or at least more than a couple of guys. Um, I would have brought in a shitload of undrafted guys just under the idea. If I hit on one or two of them, it really makes a difference with how cheaply yeah. uh, those guys get paid. I would have, I would have done something like that. I, I think th- they just went way overboard and, and especially like restructuring contracts. And, you know, I've had people who I respect in my mentions say, well, they had to try to t- sell this team somehow. I, I actually disagree with that. I think, I think that there's been this idea in New York, like I'm from the Northeast, this idea that 
in New York, you cannot rebuild. I think that's hogwash. Again, you can level with the fans and say, this is the place we're in. We're rebuilding. This is what we're doing. And I think as, as long as you're direct and relatively honest without giving away, you know, trade secrets or whatever, then I think people will understand and they will be patient throughout that process. But like, I'll give you one example. So Nick Casario, a couple of weeks ago, was making these weird comparisons uh, about how the Watson trade almost happened, but then it didn't happen. He was like, well, you know, PayPal nearly bought Pinterest, um, but it didn't happen. And he used to talk about Dell and all these things. And, and I was thinking like, okay, Nick Casario seems like he's the kind of guy who reads a lot of business books, who draws analogies from there. I would ask him this. If a Silicon Valley company or a technology company were running an NFL team, football knowledge aside, just based on analytics, would they have a running back room like Houston has, where it's like a bunch of old guys who are in decline? Like would a technology <laughs> company have David Johnson and Rex Burkhead at, as their main running backs? Isn't I would tend to think Johnson's they would not. the survivor of that running back group too. Like, like <sighs> Philip Lindsay of all the guys that they brought in, I've always liked Philip Lindsay from afar. There are some issues that he has as a player. I think like as a he fumbles a lot is one, is one of the bigger ones, but I've always thought that he's talented at the very least. David Johnson, I used to think was one of the best running backs in the NFL, but that was a really long time ago. And yep. the survivors are David Johnson and Rex Burkhead, who somehow is still in the NFL. Yeah. And it's like, I, I don't mean to make light of this. So I want to frame this in the right way. So, you know, I go to a therapist. I'm big on mental health. It's important. Same. David Johnson has talked about how, you know, he's gone to a sports psychologist because of sort of, I don't think it was just the weight of the trade, but just, you know, the weight of the contract and, and his overall situation. And, and I feel for the guy, he seems like a really good guy, but you watch a game like Sunday against the jets and he's like in and out of the blue medical tent and he's not performing well. And it just makes me wonder like, who is this good for? And if I had Nick Casario yeah. on a show, I would ask him that. I would say, Nick, with all due respect, like, David Johnson had to go to a sports psychologist after this trade. He's talking about his mental health. Who is it benefiting for him to continue to play for this team? Is it benefiting him? Is it benefiting you? Like, who is this benefiting right now? How does this make any sense? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. Two last questions for you. Where will Deshaun Watson be six months from now? I still think it's Miami now because I think that's where Deshaun wants to go. And I think they have not denied it because, you know, Brian Flores knows that that's where Deshaun wants to go. That if, if I know that, if you know that, they obviously know that. Um, and unless, you know, I think two has played better recently, yeah, but I, I still think they would have. Played well yeah. I mean, yeah, he played well. And by the way, if, if I were the Texans, I would absolutely not poo poo the idea of bringing back Tua in a trade because I'd much rather be playing Tua in 2022 than bringing in somebody like Jimmy Garoppolo. But that's neither oh, no. here nor there. Um, I think he ends up in Miami. Um, I do think that more teams will be desperate for quarterbacks in January. And if I were the Texans, like I would absolutely try to open up that market as much as I could, like Denver, uh, Washington, the Giants. There are a bunch of teams with Maybe multiple Philly. first round picks. Yeah. Yeah. It, Philadelphia. And I'd wonder if I could get Deshaun to change Carolina. Like, boy, that's a, that's a, you want to talk about a team making disastrous quarterback decisions. Yeah. Like I, I can't, maybe it's only Miami for him, but I, I tend to think after sitting out a season, there might be more hope in getting him to open up that no trade clause. No trade clause, the biggest obstacle with him. Last question. 
where will David Culley be after the season? Will he still be the head coach of the Houston Texans? Or do you think he will be elsewhere? We know what we would do. I, I think we would both cut the cord because what are you? I actually, you would honestly, keep I don't know what I do because okay. I don't, I actually, I disagree with something you said earlier. I think this is a more attractive head coaching job now than last year, just because, you know, Deshaun will be wrapped up and they finally have their picks uh, at least their own picks. So I think it's a little bit more attractive, but I'd be scared to fire him because I don't know who they can hire because I can tell you that, there were coaches last year who turned down this job and like, and that's something that Cal McNair knows. Like if I know a coach turned them down, then Cal McNair and Jack Easterby obviously know. And Nick Casario, that other coaches turned them down. So I, I don't know what I do because I'd be worried about how attractive that opening is. So I would back channel it with the agents uh, of the coaches to see, you know, what I would kind of get a feel for what they think of that job. If it were to come open you would hope that they are having some serious conversations with somebody the same way that Lincoln Riley was having them with us. Yes. Yes. Uh, who knows if that's actually happening? He is Mike Meltzer. You can hear him on mad dog radio at Mike Meltzer on Twitter. We're going to do this again, Mike. It was great to catch up with you, man, and enjoy Florida. Absolutely. Paul. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. My team's the Republican team. Go team. My team's the liberal team. Go liberals. This is a sports conversation. But I can understand why some people might think it drifts into political talk. And that's why we always keep the politics segment at the very back of the show, in case you don't want to hear it. But if you do, let's talk. First up, hand up. I have never been a LeBron James fan. Part of it has to do with the fact that I grew up in Massachusetts. And you generally are a sports hater of everything that is not yours especially if that player ends up being one of the best in his respective sport. I couldn't stand Peyton Manning, for example. Didn't help that Peyton Manning also ended up being essentially one of the chief rivals of the early stage New England Patriots dynasty. LeBron James is another one. I didn't mind LeBron James until the Celtics and Cavaliers started playing one another in the playoffs. And then I got sick of LeBron's antics, the flopping, despite being an absolute behemoth of a human being. And I thought the way that he went out in that game six of, I believe, the 2010 NBA playoffs against the Celtics, taking his jersey off as he left the court. And then following that up with the decision where he basically pantsed the city of Cleveland and told them that their city was a shithole and left to go to Miami. But he comes back. It's fine, right? I I can't believe Cleveland people let him back in. I I don't think that was a forgivable thing, even if he won a title for you. Well, he made some headlines over the course of the past week, first off, because he was ejected from a game for doing something dirty, and it was dirty. He's going to act like it was accidental. Watch the replay. He's in the free-throw lane next to Isaiah Stewart. The Pistons are winning against the Lakers. Stewart plays for the Pistons. Used to play for UW. And LeBron tries to box out Stewart. Things get a little extra physical, and LeBron throws his elbow back and and hits Stewart in the face. Stewart starts bleeding everywhere. LeBron goes up afterwards and apologizes, but I think he knew that what he had done was kind of fucked up. Isaiah Stewart lost his mind. (laughs) And honestly, that's probably more memorable than LeBron James and what he did there. Isaiah Stewart just kept coming after LeBron. Like he was Michael Myers in Halloween. 
no one was going to hold him back. I mean, he had the work ethic or the motor of a defensive lineman like Aaron Donald. And it was funny. There were a couple of moments where he, he acted like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And as soon as people stopped grabbing him, whether it were his teammates or security guards, then he would start going after LeBron again. It was really funny video. Watch it. So that's the first thing that LeBron did last week. But the second thing took place late on Wednesday night, and there was not a lot of coverage of it. In a game between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Indiana Pacers, LeBron James had fans ejected. As this game is drawing to a conclusion, I believe it was in overtime, LeBron saw a couple of fans who I'm guessing had been chirping at him over the entirety of the game, or perhaps fans that were seated near other fans were chirping at him the entirety of the game. The specifics, I don't know. And based off of my advanced lip-reading skills, told a referee, right fucking here, this guy and his lady friend. The ref had them tossed. The guy made an incredulous look. The lady trolled LeBron with a pouty face and fake crying on her way out. LeBron was asked about why he took such issue with them after the game. He said this, There's a difference between cheering on your home faithful, and then there's moments where it goes outside the lines. When obscene gestures and language come into it, it can't be tolerated. We don't know what was said. He could have gotten specific there. He didn't. Maybe he didn't want to get specific because he didn't want to reveal the details of what was actually said. And if it was really fucked up, then okay. We'll get to that in a moment. But LeBron's also someone who got mad when on the court, Draymond Green called him a bitch. I know that for some, you hear that and you're like, oh, that's distasteful. If you're playing sports, this is, this is the kind of chatter you hear. Not rationalizing it, but if you've ever played sports before, you've probably heard someone say that maybe you've even said something like that about somebody who's perhaps acting a little soft on the court lebron responded to draymond calling him soft excuse me calling him a bitch saying i'm a father of three okay so lebron doesn't like obscene language but lebron when he got the referee said right fucking here to highlight the two people that he wanted ejected on top of that if lebron's not a big fan of obscene gestures and you know, maybe that three that he hit followed by grabbing his junk in that game between the Pacers and Lakers is something that he shouldn't have done. A little hypocritical there, right? This isn't the first time that LeBron's had an interaction with a fan that led to an ejection. There were two fans at a Lakers-Hawks game earlier this year in February. A married couple. A lady who didn't know much about LeBron James and seemed to care that much about LeBron James and her husband, who apparently hated LeBron. He said something to LeBron. I'm guessing it wasn't nice. LeBron said, essentially, stop talking. I'm not 100% sure what was specifically said, but it escalated. LeBron talks to her husband, and this lady responds, don't talk to my husband. LeBron looked at her and said, quote, sit the fuck down, bitch. She responded, don't fucking call me a bitch. You sit the fuck down. Get the fuck out of here. Not the best comeback. Don't fucking talk to my husband like that. She gets kicked out. And then afterwards, LeBron tweeted a video of it and said, courtside Karen, big mad. After the game, though, he even said he didn't know if it was warranted for them to be kicked out. But the refs did what they had to do. 
It's not a good look for LeBron at face value, but maybe something was said, right? Here's the problem of the internet in 2021. We all believe that we are super sleuths. Google has empowered us to believe that we are going to be able to find the truth of anything. If you've ever watched the Netflix documentary, Don't Fuck With Cats, you probably see this really taken to an extreme degree by some people that I feel like need a life. I suppose that there were lives saved in that documentary, but whatever the case. People think that they can find things that prove that something was said or done but there's not a lot of critical thinking put into it. And we do live in a society now where a lot of people are going to look at what happened with LeBron, with LeBron and they're going to say, oh, LeBron's the worst. Other people are going to say, young king, someone must have said something messed up to him. It's, we're really divisive there. There's nuance in between. And I'm not saying that these two fans didn't say something to LeBron. For all we know, they did actually say something really fucked up. But people took, I thought, some very flimsy evidence and decided to run with it as if this is definitively what was said to LeBron. There's a YouTube comment on a YouTube video that I'm not even sure where from a guy named Jonathan Davenport. And people were using this as a smoking gun to imply that something horrible was said to LeBron. Here's what Jonathan Davenport claims the girl said. I was there. It was more than those two, but they were the loudest. The girl said, I hope Bronny dies in a car wreck. The guy kept chirping, bip, bip, like a chicken no- sound. Burp, burp. I'm guessing like that. Uh, LeBron's, burp, 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 burp. it was very weird. They were asked by staff to cool it once or twice, but hey, shrug emoji. People use this evidence, which I think is suspect, to say that LeBron James heard this from those two fans and maybe he did i'm not ruling it out but people ran with this youtube comment as if it were video evidence or audio evidence of what was said out there there's another comment that was also taken as fact by some uh this came from on twitter at jack there i heard they said i hope brawny dies in a car accident If so, that's shitty, and they deserve to be ejected. To your point, I'm sure LeBron has heard all kinds of vile stuff in his years in the limelight. So let's just pause for a second. People were using this as separate evidence. He said in this tweet, I heard they said, I hope Ronnie dies in a car accident. If so, that's shitty, and they deserve to be ejected. Which is true, if that was said. But that tweet basically seems like it's parroting what Jonathan Davenport said. People, though, were very convinced that Jonathan Davenport knew what happened in that fateful night, in that fateful Lakers-Pacers game where two fans were ejected by LeBron. And what looks, you know, without doing any digging, pretty embarrassing for LeBron unless something really messed up was said. So people believe, well, Jonathan Davenport, he's at the game. So they looked at a very small little profile picture that you'll see on YouTube. It's a black man with a beard, some glasses on. And someone saw a black guy towards the tunnel 
on the YouTube replay after the ejection. The guy's holding up his phone, looking like he's recording it. They compared it to Jonathan Davenport's profile picture. Again, these are tiny, low-resolution little pictures where you're only getting essentially a small circle of the picture itself. And they're saying to themselves, yep, that's him, smoking gun. It could have been him, but it also might just be some random black guy. I didn't think it was definitive based off of that tiny profile picture. And this person, by the way, was not sitting next to the two fans. He's by the tunnel. Maybe you could have heard what they said if this person actually was indeed Jonathan Davenport. But in the age of social media where people record things on their cell phones and with these two people at center court, don't we need more than a screenshot to definitively believe that someone said that they hope Bronny dies in a car wreck? And I, I guess I'm just skeptical sometimes with things involving LeBron James. And not to go all Clay Travis here, but I remember back in 2017, a story about the Los Angeles home of LeBron James being found with racist graffiti, supposedly. Or at least they got a call that morning that the N-word had been painted on, I guess, the gate to his L.A home by the time police arrived the slur had been painted over lebron wasn't home so i'm wondering why and how it was painted over the call was made at 6 44 a.m in a wealthy area of los angeles i'm guessing cops came pretty quickly seeing as it's a area that's wealthy in la and the slur is just gone by the time that they got there six months later the investigation someone did a little follow-up and they found that there was nothing more so at 6 44 in the morning like someone in lebron's camp got someone to find the exact right paint, go over to his gate and, and paint over said graffiti. And why would you do that too? It's, if it's a crime scene, wouldn't you want to have the graffiti out there so that you could potentially find out who did it? And I guess the cameras weren't working that night either. LeBron was not the one that's saying that Jonathan Davenport is the smoking gun here and that set, that <laughs> he's not confirming that Jonathan Davenport is a real human being who is at that Pacers-Lakers game who may or may not have heard what was said by a couple of fans out there. But I have a hard time definitively believing that those two fans said something that was really out of bounds. Maybe they did. But... If they did, let's get better evidence than a YouTube comment from a YouTube video we don't know. And more from LeBron of what actually happened other than obscene gestures and language. That's all I'm asking for. Maybe that's something we can't do, though. I mean... Do we have the attention spans to do it? Do we have the attention spans to even follow up on a story like this a week later? Does anyone even give a shit? You know, it's almost a week later. Really, I wanted just to talk about this story and say, geez, LeBron, you can't handle a couple of hecklers. But it turned into something more than it was. And maybe I just wasted all of your times, but I felt in doing deep digging into it that there's a lot of people that are very, very willing to run with nothing and act like it's something and act like they're this super sleuth online. It's annoying. Big thanks to everybody who tuned into this episode of the Galan Says Podcast. We do it twice a week on Tuesdays and on Fridays. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can do it. Galant says at gmail.com. 
Send a long email if you want. 781-452-4322. Again, 781-452-4322. If you want to leave a hot take for me to react to, to play at the end of the podcast, we're going to have a fancier sounding mail segment at the end of the podcast in the near future. I'm going to go to a comment that was made on Facebook by a regular listener of mine, Venkat, a.k.a. the big cat. He sent me a happy Thanksgiving. I appreciate that. He leaves a long post on Facebook. The Seahawks season has been an epic failure. As a crazy rabid fan who also has season tickets and attends all games, I've been struggling to come to grips with the season. We all have. Gives a bunch of examples that have really been frustrating him. And at the end, he says, if I were Jody Allen, I'd tell Pete, thank you for all your services, but it's time to retire. I'd also tell John Schneider to call the Giants or Cleveland or the Saints or another quarterback needy team and say, Ross is available if we get two to three first round picks and players. John should immediately call the Bears or the Broncos so we can get Andy Dalton or Teddy Two Gloves for a fifth or a sixth round pick. Hard pass on both of those. Nope, I don't want that. I'd rather have a young quarterback that's unproven than either of those two. I know where I'm going with both of those. It's nowhere and it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time to have either of those two guys under center. Great for the short term. You're not winning a Super Bowl with either of those guys. You might not even finish above 500 with either of those guys. No. The guy continues saying, you know, he can be the starting quarterback for a year or two while we draft and develop our next starting quarterback. No, you throw that quarterback in right away. You got it. This is a good enough organization where it shouldn't be that big of a deal. If The young quarterback, I think, has to win the starting gig, but a quarterback is going to succeed or he isn't. You know, I, uh, this this idea that it's sitting sitting behind the scenes for a year is definitely going to translate to success. Yeah, maybe it does, but it also could be a reflection of the guy that isn't ever going to be ready, isn't ever going to live up to the hype of a first-round pick. Anyway, at the end of this post, uh, Venkat says, after watching numerous game videos, has become clear, but Pete and Russ need to go. I want to pause for a second here. I'm out on Pete, and I never thought I would say that, but you have to be. What is getting better? What is improving? As I highlighted earlier. I'm not the biggest Russell Wilson fan. You guys know this. He annoys me. But you're not out on Russell Wilson. No. You're not trading Russell Wilson. You're not moving on from Russell Wilson. You shouldn't. If you're a sane person, you stick with this. Perhaps this is the beginning of the end for Russ. Perhaps it's more than just a finger. Perhaps it is more than something else. His accuracy seems affected. His decision-making seems affected. Maybe it's Shane Waldron. I, I don't know the root cause of why Russell Wilson is struggling right now. And it's definitely concerning. Quarterbacks have years like this from time to time. I'm hoping that this is just a one-year thing for Russ. But if you still have this guy under contract, why go into the unknown? You know what he is. You don't know what you're going to get with those first-round picks that you get from insert team. You don't know. And I think we all assume that these jackpot trades that are made, when a couple of first-round picks are sent, it's going to be the answer to all of your problems. And I, I think we've seen that, that that isn't generally the case. You know, drafting a quarterback early on, it might help. But take a look at the quarterbacks this year. Who looks most ready? It's Mac Jones with the Patriots. I mean, Mac Jones... If you've seen his statistics right now, over November, Mac Jones had the most yards per attempt in the NFL of all quarterbacks. And that was the fifth quarterback taken. I'm not saying that you should plan on like a quarterback falling to you or something like that. 
But, you know, trading for a bunch of first-round picks, it gives you more ammunition to make a trade in the draft. It gives you more swings at random players and what is the ultimate crapshoot. I really think that there's a lot more luck involved with the NFL draft than we're willing to admit. I would rather have Russell Wilson and what Russell Wilson can be than some draft pick that could theoretically be something else. So that's my response to that. Um, GalantSays at gmail.com. Big thanks to everybody who tuned in. If you haven't subscribed to the Galantzas podcast already, please do so. It is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. You can also watch it on YouTube. I appreciate you guys so much for tuning in. So long. Farewell. Another episode on Friday.